You're listening to Creation Talk with your host, Scott Devlin, and special guest, Dr. Mark Harwood. Mark, many Christians do not want to talk about the age of the earth. And you told me that once you did your best to avoid this issue, but something happened, turning your timidity into boldness to the point where now you talk on this subject to thousands of people around the world. What changed? Well, Scott, I became a Christian at the age of just 10, and I grew up believing that, well, God must have used evolution to create. Uh, That seemed like a logical conclusion. Uh, I didn't really think too much about it. I went through my high school, university years, but I had a lot of questions that I really couldn't answer, basic questions like, you know, why did Jesus die for me? Because it made no sense, and uh, I used to reason why couldn't Jesus have come to the earth, shown us how to live in relationship with our heavenly father and, and then have been transfigured up into heaven? Why the agony of the cross? And I didn't understand it. And that's a pretty basic question for a young Christian, right? And consequently, I wasn't capable or, or confident in sharing my faith with others because they might ask me the very same question and I couldn't answer. So then you look like a, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. And I didn't want to go there. So it was at the end of my postgraduate work, in fact, uh, I was reading a book by Billy Graham called Peace with God. And in that book, Billy Graham has a chapter on sin. And in that chapter, he has words to the effect that Adam was no gibbering caveman. And in other words, he made a deliberate, conscious decision to rebel against God. And I just felt the question impressed on me, do you believe that? Mm. And I thought, yeah, I do believe that. And it was like a light went on. I realized, well, if that's true, you can't have death and suffering before Adam's sin. And that means the whole evolutionary story is theologically impossible. So that started me on a a real journey of discovery and reading. and, And I discovered that, hey, I could actually believe what the Bible actually said without having to, as it were, leave my brains at the church door, you know. And that was liberating for me. So you're there, you're a young man, finish your postgraduate degrees, you're reading this book, and the realization that comes to you is that you can't have death before sin. Yeah. So how did that liberate you? It meant that I now understood, for instance, why Jesus died for me. Because the Bible actually makes it very clear in the New Testament that it was Adam's rebellion against God that brought suffering and death into the world. And that's why the last Adam came. He came to pay the price for the first Adam's rebellion. Mm. Now, until you link those two things together, you don't actually have a coherent basis for the gospel message. And that really was my challenge as a young Christian. I hadn't made that link. It was challenging then because I discovered that, hang on a minute, (laughs) I'm now confronting the belief system of the very culture in which I live which of course is in the millions of years of death, struggle and suffering before mankind even appears. Okay, so before that point, you would have said, hey, I'm a Christian, but I believe in the millions and billions of years. I believe in evolution. Is that correct? Yeah, sort of. I avoided it though. Yeah. You know, and okay. I, I kept my head down. Mm. I certainly didn't share my faith with people. As I said, I wasn't game because I didn't understand it. Yes. I mean, how can you confidently share with someone something that you don't actually understand? Yes. And that was my problem. So it's almost like you had these uh, skeletons in the closet that really needed addressing, but you hadn't 
being able to face them or or you didn't think it was important to face them at yeah some I, point, I, I think that's true i didn't yeah. really understand the importance of it other than i was a closet christian you know if you'd known me in my university years you wouldn't have known i was a christian i, I wasn't open about my faith at all yeah. now i didn't do all the things my engineering colleagues might have done <laughs> but i certainly wasn't sharing my faith with yes. any boldness yeah so you weren't living a lifestyle of sin but you weren't telling other people about you know, the gospel wrong. because you were concerned that some of these issues which you had not answered yourself would not be done. Yeah, I didn't have confidence. Yeah, and so what you're saying is the age of the earth is critical to you having the boldness to share the gospel. And and so far we've just covered, well, you saw the problem and the problem was we can't have death before sin. And so that's an issue theologically, that's an issue for the gospel because why did Jesus come if there's... Like he came to abolish death. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. But the thing is, the millions of years yep. always place death before Adam. Right. So if you have death before Adam, you don't have a meaningful gospel message to share. Mm. So that means the millions of years actually undercuts the gospel. And that was a revelation to me because mm, mm. I'd, I'd never joined those dots before. Yeah, yeah. Now, it didn't happen overnight. It was a process of, of reading and discovering. I like to summarize it like this. I say I discovered two key things. Number one, that I could believe what the Bible says because the evidence all points that way, and we'll talk about some of that a little later on. And the second thing I discovered is that I should believe it because the Genesis account is the basis of the gospel. Yeah, got you. So there's the the theology or what the Bible says to be plainly true means that you should should believe it. But then also there's a lot of scientific evidence that points to yes. this actually being yes. true. But certainly that's not what we hear, Mark. We we hear the contrary. We do indeed. Yeah. And I hadn't heard any evidence to the contrary either uh, at that stage of my life. You'd just heard the evidence for the millions and billions yes. of years for evolution. Sure. You'd not heard the evidence for creation. It's in the textbooks. It's on the TV documentaries. Yep. Where do you find out the evidence for you know, that supports the biblical account of history? And so how did you find out the evidence that that does support the biblical history and how what did that do to your faith well reading that book by billy graham really started me on a journey because i realized i had to rethink my science now and i started to buy books and read them and so on and i remember the first one i ever bought <laughs> and i started to read through it very skeptically so i had a pencil on putting question marks down the margin and yeah not sure about that I got to about the third or fourth page and it suddenly dawned on me, this guy's right. (laughs) It's actually true. I can trust the Bible. Mm -hmm. It it really was liberating. In in a sense, it was like being born again, again, uh, if I can use that, uh, not too much of an exaggeration. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, that sounds like a a very significant moment and you can see the effects in your lives because since that point, for 35 years, you've been giving this message to audiences across the world. Yes, 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 I have indeed. So, and um, and it's also been really exciting to hear some of the testimonies that you have of being able to transmit the same information to others and them have the same revelation. Well, you know, just a week ago, I was at a, a uh, church and uh, after the meeting, this man came up to me and said, I just want to share briefly with you. He said, for 32 years, I've been burdened with doubts. It was all about dinosaurs and the age of the earth and how do these things fit and I'd ask questions and I'd get answers that just confused me. But today, during the meeting, it was like a weight was lifted off my shoulders and uh, he just couldn't stop saying thank you enough. Thank you to the Lord because it's God who revealed his truth to him. And that's why I just love sharing on this subject. Yeah. 
It's why you do what you do. That's great. Absolutely. So Mark, you've mentioned two things. One is there's the need to go and find the information for Christians to find this information that there is evidence, scientific evidence that supports the biblical account of creation. But you also said another important thing that was happened in your transformation, and that was that you understood that theologically it needed to be this way, not just for the inerrancy of scripture and to believe the Bible says what it really says, plain as it's, you read it, but also because there was this big issue for the gospel. Because many Christians, and my experience was, I thought, okay, the Bible must be true. So I, I took the position that the Bible was true, but I didn't think it was necessary to be evangelical about the age of the earth. I thought I could be evangelical about being anti-Darwinian evolution, because that was obvious, this death and suffering. God did not design this process of death and suffering. Mm. But yes. I thought it was not necessary to be evangelical about the millions and billions of years, even though personally I held to what the Bible said was true, the what people who characterize as a young earth position. But to me, that when I first found out the death before suffering issue, it took me maybe a couple of weeks for that to really sink in as I started delving yes. into this. Now, what I want to ask you is, because you said the same thing, it took you a bit of time. Is there any recommendation you would give to people that are trying to understand this issue of why death before suffering is an issue for the gospel and why? Because really, if they understand that, they understand why they need to do the second thing, which is find yeah, out more information. Yeah, yeah this is very important for yep. Christians. Yep. It really is. And in my own experience is, is testimony to that. And look, there is a wealth of information. And I, I couldn't think of anything better than recommending that people go to creation.com, which is the website for Creation Ministries International. There's over 13,000 articles on that website that address the whole variety of issues that come up when start, one starts to consider Genesis as actually being true history. Yes. Uh, the age of the earth, of course, being one of those. Mm. But it's one that is a very, very important one, as you've rightly pointed out. Okay. Now, that's been really great to hear your testimony, Mark, and, and how this is an important issue. So I want to get now into how we determine the age of something and what some of the arguments are on both sides. So I guess I'll ask you that question first. How do we determine the age of something? Well, I know my age because I've got a document at home called a birth certificate, which thankfully my parents right? find, but just to shade more, yeah, actually, <laughs> I'm glad you said that, Scott. <laughs> And uh, so I have an historical record. Now, there is no scientific experiment you can conduct on my body, not that I would let you, <laughs> to determine my age. So making observations in the present actually can't permit you to determine an age. So you really need an historical record. Can I just pick you up on that? But sure. we, we could guess, right? There would be your cells, would they yes. be slightly different to a baby's oh, cells? Oh, sure. But, sure, but I think I think you're getting a rough is, estimate. But you cannot not with any precision is my point. Right? Yeah, got, yeah. You certainly couldn't determine that I was born on the twenty fourth of October in eighteen something. No, not was that far <laughs> okay. So, if you want an accurate now, a lot of the ages we see for things like rocks and fossils are given with extraordinary precision. So much precision that you think, wow, these scientists are you know they're really on top of their game. They know this stuff really well. I mean, who could argue with them? But it's interesting when you peel the layers back because you can't actually measure age. Right. So a scientist measures the physical and chemical properties of his sample, but you can't measure the age. So what they do typically is measure a process or a rate, something which is happening and can be observed in the present. And then they wind it backwards to determine when it might have begun. Now, that's a, a principle called the uniformitarian principle. 
So what's happening today is what has been happening for time immemorial. And if we can measure this rate, we just go backwards and find the commencement. So that's very fundamental. It, it has, it's a principle which has really dictated the um, conclusions of geology now for a couple of hundred years. Mm. Now, the problem with that is that you can't actually make observations in the past. Science only works in the present because we've only got the present. We don't have the past at all. Perhaps I could give you an example. Let me use this glass of water. I'll try not to spill it on my laptop. So I've got some water in this. Yep. And uh, let's imagine that this was sitting underneath a dripping tap. Okay. Now, if I measure the rate at which the tap is dripping, yep. and then I measure the volume of water in the cup, I could calculate how long the cup has been under the tap, right? So that you've got the dripping rate and then you've got the volume that's in the cup. Yep. And then you just say, well, okay, the volume and you've got the dripping rate, you can calculate the age. Yeah. It's, Sounds pretty straightforward, yep. doesn't it? Yeah. But let's imagine now that you've only just discovered this cup under the tap. You've walked into the kitchen and there it is. Yeah. You didn't see the cup put under the dripping tap. Okay. So to be able to work out how long the cup's been there, you've had to make some assumptions. What kind of assumptions do you think you would have to make? Well, I guess you have to assume the cup was empty to start with. Absolutely. But you don't know because you weren't there. True. And are you saying that's similar with the rock? I guess that's how they... Absolutely. You also don't know the tap's been dripping at the same rate. True. Yeah. You've okay. only, you, can, you only measure in the present, as the you were present, saying before. That's right. So if someone had turned the tap on hard, partly filled up the cup, turned the tap off carelessly, left it dripping and then walked away for oh, yeah. seconds before you came into the kitchen... Yeah. You've got, I've got a much slower dripping rate now, and I'm going to estimate exactly. a very big age when actually it was dripping much faster in the past. Yeah. So it would have been, so it's a much younger yes, pool cup than, right. I, than exactly. I realized. And so you're saying some of the processes they use work on this principle. Well, I, I'm just trying to draw the analogy, right? So that would be applying uniformitarianism to take the volume of water, divide by the drip rate, hey presto, we get the age. So... You can think of radiometric dating, for instance, of working a little bit like that. You have a radioactively unstable element called a parent element that decays at a certain rate to produce what's called the daughter element. So if you can measure the ratio of the parent element to the daughter element in your sample and knowing the rate of decay, you can then calculate the age of the sample. But you're measuring the process in the present. You're measuring the volume of parent element and daughter element in the present. But you don't know the initial conditions, how much parent and how much daughter were in the sample to begin with. Maybe some parent element has been added to or removed from the sample in the past, same with the daughter element. In fact, there are something like seven independent assumptions you have to make to be able to determine the age of your sample based on measurements in the present. Wow. And so is there anything that can ratify those assumptions or is there any way that we can see that those assumptions are correct assumptions? Because I, I guess I'm asking, is there a way of calibrating this clock? Because this is really important what you're saying, because when people think about the age of the earth and it's a stumbling block for Christianity and the biblical history of the earth, it's mainly to do with radiometric dating is, is the main it is. thing I hear. It yeah. is. That's right. Radiometric dating is held up as the like an absolute dating method, yes, uh, which gives billions of years if you use certain processes like uranium, lead, or potassium, argon, and so there are quite a number of them. And what you're describing is not an absolute method; it's a it's a relative method that depends on the assumptions. Well, it it's uh, a method which is rife with assumptions. Okay. Okay. So 
it's probably not a relative method. A relative dating would apply to things like layers of rock above or below another layer of rock, in which case you would reasonably assume the layer on top was deposited after the layer below. Yes. Although even then, that's not necessarily true because sometimes layers are laid down by horizontal transport of a, a slurry of, uh, of different particle sizes and so on. But let's not go there for the minute. So it's put forward as an absolute dating method. Yes. But it is based on assumptions. Yes. Now, what happens when you get a date that doesn't fit what you expect to get? So let me give you an illustration. Let's say that when you've walked into this kitchen with our dripping tap and the cup, someone says to you, oh, I saw that cup put under the tap 45 minutes ago. Okay. And then you've got... Something. So now you know the answer. How yeah. long has the cup been? It's been there for 45 minutes, irrespective of drip rates and volumes of water. Mm. Okay. So you might think, when I calculate it based on drip rates and volumes of water, I get much longer than 45 minutes. So how do I make it fit? Well, okay, maybe there was a different amount of water in the cup. Maybe the drip rate was different. So you adjust your assumptions to make your scientific calculation fit what the historical record tells you. Mm. Can you see the difference? So it's the historical record which actually determines how long the cup's been under the tap, or if you like the age of your rock or your fossil. Yep. Now, here's the catch. <laughs> what do you assume is the age? And the assumption, in the case of the evolutionary story, is based on what people believe. So if you begin with a belief that says, I have to explain this universe without God, I'm forced into a naturalistic explanation because I cannot admit a supernatural creator into the equation. Mm. So when I have a naturalistic process and a model, that's the evolutionary story, I've got to have deep time, as it's called, the billions of years, to even have a ghost of a chance of explaining the extraordinary complexity and diversity of living things, for instance, that we see in the world around us. So the millions of years become a complete non-negotiable for the naturalistic explanation. So when you get an age, if it doesn't fit your millions of years, well, obviously the assumptions have to be adjusted so that it does fit. So you, you said earlier that if we saw, if someone told you, hey, the cup was placed under there 45 minutes ago, you've got your answer. Yeah. And you're saying that that is what a written record is. And so really, are you saying the only way we can truly determine an age is if we have someone that observed it at the time? I think that's exactly right. Yep. And the best possible historical record is a written record from the eyewitness. Case. And I guess that's how we determine most of written history. And people talk about events very conclusively that happened, you know, 500, 2000 years ago. And then we go into not just written history, but I guess it's archaeological history. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And we can confirm various dates and events with reasonable precision. But then written history, how far does it go back? Ah, well, there is the question. In fact, what you've got to is, is at the nub of the issue. Yes. You see, the earliest written record we have, we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says on that first day, created the earth, light and darkness were separated, day and night there was one day. Yes. So that's the very beginning, and that's when the written record of history commences. Now, people say, oh, but hang on a minute, there was nobody there then. And yes, but God was there, and he is the eyewitness of what he did in that creation week when he was speaking the universe into being. 
Yes. So that's the eyewitness, reliable, written record. Written through the agency of human hands, yes, but inspired and guided by God's Holy Spirit yeah. to write only what was true. So it was Moses that wrote the first five books, the Pentateuch? Well, he was the editor and writer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there may well have been written documents that he had available to him, which he would have integrated into what's called the Pentateuch now, the first yep. five books of the Bible. So is it possible that God told Adam what he did and he wrote it down and got passed down the generations through Noah? What was your Seems thoughts? perfectly reasonable to me. They walked and talked in the garden, the Bible yeah. says. I can imagine Adam saying, so God, how did you create the stars? And uh, yeah. what about this tree? How did you make that? And, and I could just think it would have been just amazing. And Adam, remember, was a perfect man. No flaws, no faults. He had a perfect intellect. Phenomenal capacity, like the like of which we just don't see today. But the problem is, our thinking is so influenced by the evolutionary concepts, we think about the patriarchs as having swung out of the trees. Mm. <laughs> but instead, they were giants of intellect, and um, we're just a pale reflection, I think, of what they would have been. Yeah. So I've heard it two ways. I've heard that Adam could have passed this down through the generations, mm. and then it got to Moses or that God could have revealed it to Moses. But either way, the eyewitness was still there because it was God. Do you have a preference on those conclusions? Is there a... Oh, I think that sounds great. You see, in fact, either way. you can go... I think both. Okay, yeah. Interesting. Um, you have the early records are passed down. Now, it turns out that Noah's father, Lamech, was 56 years old when Adam died. So it's quite possible the record, the information, I'm quite sure they would have had writing right from the very beginning... Yeah. went from Adam to Lamech to Noah, survived the flood, and Shem, Noah's son, was alive when Abraham was alive. Wow. So you don't get many steps. It's not like you have the Chinese whispers problem for thousands of generations. Not like that at all. Just, very few. Just a few generations. Yeah, very few. Then you're at Moses. Interesting. So we're talking about the ages of things, and we've said that written history, most people agree on written history when you talk about the birthday of Dr. Mark Harwood, <laughs> when you talk about when World War II started, maybe even when the Roman Empire was, and further back. People tend to agree roughly on Egyptian history, for example. I know there's some discrepancies, but what we're saying is you don't go much back further back and you get the start of all written history, and that was biblical written history. But some people want to believe that we can go much further back than that. And the way they need to do that is through these radiometric dating methods, which you talked about having a number of assumptions. Yes. But assumptions that are driven by an initial belief. Yes. About the process of creation. Yes. Okay. So, so for the evolutionist, then, person who believes in evolution, the deep time, the millions and millions of years, is, is an integral part of that whole story. Yes. If you don't have that amount of time, you don't have time for... For evolution to have taken place. You can't have an ape turning into a man in just a thousand years. It needs millions of years. Well, not even that's enough as it turns out, but <laughs> yeah. that's that's what they think. That's right. Yeah. But it's based on a belief. Yes. And the important thing is that the belief begins with the assumption you must explain everything in natural terms. Yes. And the reason is that they reject the supernatural. Mm. So if you reject the supernatural, it's the same as saying, well, there is no God. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is an atheistic belief. So the deep time and evolutionary position is, in fact, based on a, an a priori belief that rejects God. 
that's interesting because mostly people would say that we're not coming to it from a scientific position. It's a faith position because we have to ignore the evidence. But I think what you're saying is that this isn't evidence. It's a measurement made based on assumptions. And if you change those assumptions, then you change your interpretation. Well, that's right. Well, here's the thing. You can change the assumptions around your dating methods and get any age you like, depending on the assumptions you make. But the worst thing is you can't test any of those assumptions because they're all in the past. Yes. And we don't have the past. All we have is the present. I guess the conclusion out of all of that is the only reliable source of age information is a an historical eyewitness account of what actually happened. And I believe that's what we have in God's Word, the Bible, right from the very beginning. Okay, so let me ask you, how how old is the Earth? Okay, so let's apply that principle. The historical record actually tells us. Yep. Tells us that God created everything in six days. Adam was created on the sixth day of creation. Yeah. It tells us that uh, Adam was 130 years old when his son Seth was born, and Seth was 105 when his son Enos was born, and they're all the way down to Noah. And it says in the 600th year of Noah's life, the flood took place. You can just add those numbers up. They're all there in Genesis chapter 5. Yep. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to do it. It's straightforward. In fact, I get my grandchildren to do it as an exercise when they get to their 10th birthday. I'll sit down and we build a timeline of Bible history. Wow. And you'll discover that the flood occurred 1,656 years after the creation. And then you can follow on and discover that Abraham was born about 2,000 years after the creation. From Abraham to Jesus is about 2,000 years. We know that scripturally and also from history. And from the time of Jesus to the present day is about 2,000 years. So if you add those up, according to the Bible, and this is not my idea, here we are about 6,000 years after the creation. Now, that's a bombshell. Mm. I mean, 6,000 years? Are you kidding me? Yeah, most people would say that. Yes. And and look, I've got to be honest. When I realized that, it, it really did take my breath away. And I had to say, wow, Lord, there's got to be some evidence of that. But you know, there is. There's enormous amounts of evidence for a recent creation. Yes. And just that people don't know about it. But that's the sort of thing which is on our website. It feels like a big claim, and it feels like, well, a big claim, it needs some big support. Absolutely. So what what would, could you give us some of those, I mean, obviously people can go to the website and they can find out those, sure. creation.com forward slash age, was it, or 101? Yeah, yeah, creation.com forward slash age. Age, and you can go and see a whole list there. 101 evidences. Could you just give us a few of them to, to start us off? Absolutely. Look, there are various classes of evidence. There are those which show discordant results with the evolutionary timescales. Then there are those which point closer to just a matter of a few thousand years for Earth history. Now, in the former category, I would think, well, let, let's take some radiometric dating things first. And maybe might be worth just spending a little bit of time on that because radiometric dates get so much weight put on them in our culture. So what you can do is test how good the dating methods are. Now, in order to do that, you need to have a rock of known age. Mm. So that takes the assumptions away, like earlier we were saying. Absolutely. So you may have got your historical record, you see. You yep. know when this rock was formed. How do you get a rock of known age? Yeah. Well, a really good way is to take a rock 
from the lava dome of a volcano with a known eruption date. Guy, it's just been solidified, so you know yep. you saw, someone saw it. It's a historical record. That's right. So there's an historical record with a date. So we now know exactly how old the rock is. So people have taken rocks from the lava dome, for instance, of Mount St. Helens. It erupted in 1980, and a rock from the lava dome was dated various samples using the potassium-argon dating method. And people got anywhere from 350,000 years to 2.8 million years old. Wow, and it was only 1980. Well, yes, and the rocks at the time were about 10 years old. Oh, right. So, okay, so you read in the literature, people say things like, well, dating rocks that are young is notoriously difficult. So just hang on a minute. Let's just think through that. I've just given you a rock to date, and you're telling me that a young rock is very hard to date. But I don't know if it's young or old. I just know I've got a rock. I want you to tell me, is it young or old? So it's an interesting admission to make, isn't it? Yeah. That the dating laboratories themselves say, oh, well, it's pretty hard to date young rocks. But the point is, you shouldn't get such an extraordinary range of very old ages for something which is known to be much younger. Yeah, got you. So I guess they're kind of saying, hey, look, the amount of daughter element is going to be very low because it's so young. But what you're saying is, well, hang on, shouldn't you get the lower end of your range? Well, yes. And not this range because it's 350,000 years to 2.5 million. And it should be within your, your error bars of performing the and, measurement. Yeah, and they give error bars with these things Absolutely. as well. And so, Any competent dating laboratory will yeah. do exactly that. Yeah, wow. wow. So there are a number of others. Um, there's a couple of volcanoes in Hawaii, Kilauea and Hualalai, yeah. each of which erupted approximately 200 years ago. Various ranges of ages, anywhere from up to 22 million years or one was dated between 160 million and 3.3 billion years old, and they're about 200 years old. So people have done this a lot. It sounds like, I mean, they must be creationists that are going to these sites and they take the rock samples and they send them away to labor laboratories. Yeah, but it's, it but it's not only creationists. I mean, the oh. geologists want to know the ages. Yes, um, yes. And they come across a lava flow somewhere, so they send it off to be dated, mm. uh, usually potassium argon for the lava flows. Mm. They want to have confidence that these results are good. Mm. But if you get unreliable results for things that have a known age, yeah. how can you have confidence in the results you get for things of unknown age? Yeah. So there's a fundamental dilemma there. But there's something else you can do. You can test different dating methods on things which must be about the same age. So let me give you an example. In Queensland, there's a mine where about 20-something metres down a drilling had discovered a, a basalt layer from yep. a lava flow. It had passed through a forest and there was charred wood still there. So the basalt was dated using potassium argon at 45 million years. The wood was carbon dated at something, something like 45,000 years, a factor of a thousand different. But they must be at the same age because mm -hmm. the lava has flowed through the forest. Wow. So you would think different dating methods should give about the same results. Now, people will say, yeah, but hang on, carbon dating can't go back millions and millions of years. But it gave a date well within the range of its capability and precision. So it should have at least maxed out, if nothing else. But there was carbon-14 present, showing that it could not be millions of years old. And she was saying they came back with the carbon date and the error bars saying that, okay, it's within this. So it's within its calibre, it's within its yeah, level. Yeah. And so therefore that shows that these methods are not very reliable. That's what it's showing. And to be fair, no 
serious scientist relies solely on a radiometric date. Right. For these very reasons, the uncertainty of the assumptions behind them. So geologists, for instance, would always do what they call a field survey. They will look at the layers of rock above and below their the relevant sample and if, for instance, it's above a layer which is generally accepted to be uh, 200 million years old and one of the results comes back more than 200 million, well, they'd reject that because it's above that layer. So it can't be that old, it must be younger. So there's other data which is brought to bear in interpreting the results. So when the published results come out, if a date is um, within what they expect, they'll publish it. If it's not too far out, it might appear as a footnote. But if it's completely whacked, they just drop it. Now, I'm not trying to be critical of scientists because I am one, but what it reveals is how our belief systems work because we filter all the evidence we get in accordance with what we already believe. Mm. So if I've signed up for the naturalistic worldview, the evolutionary story, and there can be no creator, if I get a date which is just way out of court, like too young, for instance, I'll just reject it. I'll, I'll rationalise it away. Maybe there were impurities. Perhaps the lab equipment was not calibrated properly. Mm. It's a bit of an insult to the lab. Maybe the lab technician went for morning tea. I don't know. Mm. But whatever happened, something was wrong. Now, the problem is you've got a budget for your research project, and these results, these experiments are expensive, so you haven't got enough money to go and do it again. So you, um, you cull your data. Now, that has an interesting effect. It means that everything that gets published aligns pretty closely with the paradigm. Mm. So the peer review system simply preserves the paradigm. We've spent a bit of time talking about radiometric dating, which I think is really important. And actually, there's probably a lot more reading that people can do on that. And, and again, we'd refer them to the website, creation.com. So I could, let's go back to the evidences. You, What sure. are the other evidences? So we've talked about actually radiometric dating. You can find rocks of a known age and the radiometric dating gets it wrong. Yeah, yeah. But what about yeah other evidences for a young age? Look, there's a lot of these. Let me just give you a few. And these are the sorts of things that people never hear about, right? Yeah. The river systems around the world today dump about 20 billion tonnes of mud and sediment onto the ocean floor every year. Now, we can take an average depth of mud and sediment. We can calculate approximately how much is there. We know the rate at which it's being added to. So we can place an upper limit on the age of the ocean floor. And it turns out all of that sediment at the current rates, right? We're just taking a process, which we observed today, we're winding it backwards. And all of that would have got there in less than 12 million years. Interesting. Now, that's a disaster for the evolutionary story because the oceans are supposed to be at least 3,000 million years old, not just 12. But then people might say, ah, yes, but it's too long for the biblical account of only thousands of years. So you've got to go back to the historical record. So is there some event in the historical record in Genesis that might have dumped billions of tonnes of mud and sediment on the ocean floor? And you guessed it, the flood, mm. right? So when you have the, the true historical record of the history of the earth, we have the basis on which we can interpret the evidence we see. There are stacks of those. The, the rate at which the continents are being eroded would mean that the current continents would erode down to sea level in just 25 million years. How come they're still here? You know, the Earth is supposed to be four and a half billion years old, we're told. It's not consistent with the evolutionary story. Outside of the Earth, looking into our solar system, people think that astronomy is, you know, just a lay-down misere of proof of evolutionary processes and vast age. Uh, the moons of Jupiter are absolutely fascinating. There's lots of those. Uh, back in 2018, they discovered another 12. 
They were interesting because they were what are called retrograde moons. They orbit Jupiter in the reverse direction from all the others, which rotate around Jupiter in the same direction which Jupiter itself is spinning on its axis. So that's a bit interesting. That's another story. But in this group of 12 going backwards, there's one going forwards. (laughs) And so... You know, the, in the, uh, the article in the journals, the scientists said, this is an unstable situation. Head-on collisions would quickly occur and grind the objects down to dust. But they're not dust. They're still there. Mm. So just how long can you fly upstream in amongst all these other moons with an orbit that crosses their paths and not collide? So what it says is those moons orbiting Jupiter have not been there for four and a half billion years lucky to have been there for one million years. So it's a pointer to a recent creation. Now, the evolutionists can always make up a story, and they'll make up a story that says, ah, well, maybe there was a collision nearby, and the debris got captured in Jupiter's orbit and ended up in this nice circular group going the wrong way, except for one which is going the right way. Uh, But anyway, let's move on. It's a long bow to draw. Yeah, got you. And I don't think it's really a plausible explanation at all. Far more likely that the creator made it that way so that there's an indelible stamp of his creative genius on the moons of Jupiter showing us that they were recently created. Saturn's rings are decaying away at an alarming rate. The Cassini space probe passed through the rings multiple times towards the end of its life. And the results are that Scientists believe, secular scientists, that the rings cannot be more than 400 million years old. So there's no really plausible model for how they formed. Here they are, and they're decaying rapidly. So there are some things that are very discordant with the evolutionary story. But things which perhaps are more directly related to the biblical age, now look at the population of the world today. It's about 8 billion people, as recently estimated. You know, when I was born, the Earth's population was 2.5 billion. Wow. And when I was doing my post-grad work, it was about 4 billion. And now it's 8 billion. So how long can we keep on projecting this? And you go backwards. Now, here's the problem, you see. If you look at the number of people that survived the flood... And there were six people who then populated the world, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's three sons and their wives, and take, let that population grow at the rate of about half a percent for four and a half thousand years, you end up with eight billion. There's half a percent, is that? That's recent? a very conservative growth rate. The growth rate today is more like one percent or even more. Wow. So more than sufficient uh, to allow for things like wars, famines, and diseases. But if mankind had been on the planet for 100,000 years or more, where are all the people? We should be shoulder to shoulder on every square metre of the Earth's surface, including the ocean basins, and that wouldn't be enough. So it's not consistent with the idea that we've been on this planet for 100,000 years or perhaps even longer. Sounds like you can't even go back 10 or 20,000 years. Just with the, I've not looked into the numbers, but just from what you're saying there. Well, that's right, but it's quite consistent with the biblical timelines. Yeah. Another one, which is very interesting, the discovery of carbon-14 in uh, dinosaur bones and in fossils uh, everywhere, the remains of living things, Mm. consistently show the presence of carbon-14. Carbon-14 has a relatively short half-life, about 5,700 years, 
so quick that you really would not expect to find or be able to detect carbon-14 for more than about maybe 60 to 80,000 years. That's just maximum, maximum life or maximum time you can. Yeah, but to be able to, you know, you're down to maybe a molecule and, and then that's going to ultimately decay away as well. That'd be the daughter element. It would be so, yes. so small you can't detect it. It can't, can't detect it. So the fact that carbon-14 is consistently found in uh, organic material, fossils, says that they haven't been around for millions of years. Mm. It could only be a matter of thousands, but thousands is consistent with the Bible's record of history. Mm. And when you correct for things like the effect of the flood, mm. the dates one gets from carbon-14 dating actually contract, but that's another story we could go into. So there's, there's a lot of these things which show that the evolutionary story really struggles to explain processes that we can observe today. And there are some of those which point very strongly to just thousands of years. Mm. You know, Mark, some of the things that you're mentioning, I can imagine uh, a excuse for it. And you even mentioned some of them to try and dismantle them. And, and I guess that's always going to happen here because in a way, a lot of those examples you gave were employing the same tactic of uniformitarianism. Yes, yes they uh, were. But, so really, we're coming back to the more the beginning of our conversation, which was there isn't a way to measure age apart from a written record. That's exactly right. So when we're looking at these evidences, you can paint them one way or the other, and you can choose which one you want. And so I guess what you're saying is like, you've mentioned all of these, and maybe many people have not heard of any of them, but the ones we get told are the, the ones we get told in school on our newspapers, in our magazines, on our TV screens, in our museums. We only get told the one side of the story that uses certain assumptions to get these large ages. What you're demonstrating is that actually we can use the same idea of uniformitarianism and get young ages. Just We just need to look at different things. And show that some of the processes produce very discordant results using uniformitarianism, discordant with the evolutionary story. Got you. But you're absolutely right. You can always tell a story. Mm. Anybody can make up any story you like about the unobserved past mm. because no one can check you. <laughs> no one was there. So the evolutionist always has an answer somehow or other, or they'll make one up. But the question is how plausible is it? How consistent is it? Yes. So once again, it comes back to the fundamental belief. Have you begun with the assumption that there is no God? Have you tried to build an atheistic assumption into your worldview? Now, that was my problem as a young Christian, you see. I was integrating an atheistic world, trying to, an atheistic worldview into my developing biblical worldview. And it was hopelessly in conflict. I therefore couldn't understand uh, why did Jesus have to die? You know, as fundamental as that. That's why this is such an important issue. Yeah. And as we were talking about at the start, you... Um, were timid in your faith, you didn't share it mm. because you were conflicted because you had two worldviews going on within yourself. And really, I, when you tell your testimony, there seems to be this this understanding that comes from, uh, actually, I can just stick to the one worldview, have a consistent one worldview. And that yeah. really gave you the life and the energy, uh, well, gave you the understanding to That's right. be confident That's in right. your faith. Well, the Bible says we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and strength, right? So having... Somebody says, you know, you don't park your brains at the church door, right? But what that means is we can love the Lord with our hearts and with our intellects yeah. fully because the evidence correctly interpreted in the light of the true history of the world simply supports 
that historical record. Now, you might think that's a bit circular, but it, it actually isn't because the variety of evidence we get is from a whole range of independent disciplines, and they all point to the truth of the Scriptures. And there are many, many ways, as I said, uh, that, that people will find on our website. But there, if you'll allow me, there are two other key reasons why this age of the earth issue is important, that if the millions of years are true, we have a problem with God's character. Right, why is that? Because the millions of years always include death, struggle, and suffering. We, as little creatures evolve slowly to more complex organisms and finally mankind appears. Now, a lot of Christians will say, oh, well, Genesis begins with man. Um, and uh, before that was all this animal death for millions of years. And when Adam rebelled, it was just human death that came. But the Bible says that the whole of creation is in bondage to decay. Yeah, Romans 8. Yes, Romans 8. It, it's not just mankind. Everything in the creation is subject to this bondage to decay, this inexorable running down. So the whole of the, the creation, including animals. And that seems to impugn God's character as well. Well, saying, yes, because, because if the millions of years are true, it means that he created the world full of suffering and death yeah. before man and therefore before man's sin. And that doesn't sound like the God of the Bible. That doesn't sound like the 1 Corinthians 15 when it says death is the last enemy to be abolished. It's an enemy. That's right. And so what you're saying is actually when we accept the millions of years of the age of the earth, we're, we're agreeing not with the Bible. We're agreeing that death is not the enemy, but God created death as a means yeah. to go forward. So hence the classic question comes, if God is a good God, why do bad things happen? Why doesn't he just fix it all up? Yeah. Why does he allow it to happen? Doesn't he know what's going on? Doesn't he care? Is he impotent? You see, these are questions which, uh, well, that was a question that plagued me as a young Christian. I couldn't answer that. Well, that's a major question for unbelievers as well. When yes. you're evangelizing, people will ask that question. I had that question before I became a Christian. What about the struggle? What about the pain? Like That's right. Now, I don't believe you can coherently answer that question without understanding the Genesis account as as history. So the first challenge is the character of God. And for Christians to believe in millions of years, they've actually impugned God's character. But the second issue is to do with the inerrancy of the scriptures. Now, the Bible claims to be the truth multiple times. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah. And in John 1, it tells us that he is the Logos, yeah. and he was uh, in the beginning. He was with God in, in the beginning. So the, the word of God is truth and was there always. So everything that is in the written word of God, the Bible, must be true and we can have complete confidence in it. So people say to me, oh, yes, but, but it was written by men. Well, yes, through the agency of human hands, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that those human authors wrote only in accordance with God's purposes and without errors. Now, just think back. They would have had all kinds of strange ideas about the physical universe. There was a very common view that there were five elements, or was it four? You know, air, fire, earth, and water, four. Yep. <laughs> and a lot of people held that, that view, but not one of those human authors put any of that into what they wrote. The Holy Spirit so guided them that no errors were introduced into Scripture. Interesting. I never thought about that before. That Because a lot of the time you hear, oh, the Bible's not scientific. But what you're saying is there's no, even though well, there was errors, scientific errors in that day, 
they were not recorded in the scripture. That's right. So you're saying that's evidence that God guided the scripture. I, I believe so. Yeah, it makes it's, sense. Um, so it's not that the Bible is a scientific textbook. It clearly is not, but yeah. it's a history book of yes. the universe. And it's got no errors. And it has no errors. So if the Bible makes statements, we can have complete confidence mm -hmm. that it indeed is true. So there are three counts on which it's a major issue for the Christian, I believe, that it impugns the millions of years, impugns the character of God, yep. the millions of years calls into question the inerrancy of Scripture, Very. and the millions of years undermines the proclamation of the gospel because it makes it unintelligible. You summarized it really well. So the millions of years challenges the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, it impugns the character of God and it downgrades the gospel or makes the gospel unintelligible. Wow, these are really serious things that Christians should really think about. I mean, yes. the age of the earth, it sounds like it is a big deal and something that we should look into. Yes, well, absolutely. Thanks a lot for your time, Mark. It's a pleasure. Thank you.